don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everyone, but it's imperative that you tell the right someone at the right time. Hello and welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. To commemorate yesterday's World Suicide Prevention Day, we're looking back at our episode with former professional footballer, chairman of the Professional Footballers Association and active mental health advocate and ambassador, Clark Carlisle. Clark had a tremendously successful career in football. Alongside playing in the Premiership for a number of years, he also won three caps for England under-21s. But alongside all of his success came huge amounts of hardship, including serious injuries from football and a battle with depression, which culminated in an attempted suicide. In today's episode clip, we hear a bit about Clark's departure from football his suicide attempt, and tons of crucial advice for anyone struggling with their mental health. Sadly, suicide is still prevalent and often a taboo subject to discuss. We know how important it is for all of us to feel comfortable opening up and discussing our mental health, no matter how uncomfortable it may be at first. We really hope today's episode will encourage you to do exactly that and reach out to your loved ones to check in on them. For even more entrepreneurship from Clark, then please make sure you head over to hear the full episode from Series 9. We've left a link in the episode show notes. But with all the practical kind of thought and application in the world, nothing prepared me for that loss of identity that I had without football. Like I said earlier, that understanding of your whole self beyond your vocation. I'd never gone through that. So without football, without those successes and those failures, the wins and the losses, me proving or redeeming myself, I had nothing. And it's not just that I had nothing. I felt that I was of no value to those around me because the industry of football is so pervasive. If you win a match, if I win a match, I feel like I'm a good dad and I'm a good member of my community because all the fans that I interact with on a daily basis are like, oh, excellent, well done. You were great at the weekend. I go home, we got a win bonus, so my family can get a little bit extra this week. I'm like, yeah, I'm being a good dad. But if I lose, then I feel like I'm not providing for the family. And if I have the audacity to show my face in the street, there are certain fans that are like, look at you smiling. You don't even, you don't give a toss. You were terrible at the weekend. There's this illusion of ownership where it totally pervades your private life. So because of that, because football was everything, when it was taken away, I had no understanding of my value in life without it. And that hole, that chasm, oh my gosh. Incredible, James, incredible. It's compounded because people would be like, oh, didn't you used to be Clark Carlisle? I'm like, oh, I still am. I just don't play football anymore. So even though I made the transition job-wise, emotionally and psychologically, I hadn't. And um, it took me to a very, very dark place of hypercritical and negative self-talk and rumination. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to hear that, but, and it's really understandable that you can go from such an intent. I mean, being a footballer, especially in the UK, I can't think of a more highly pressured, I can't think of a better job when it's going well. And I can't think of a worse one when it's going badly. Cause you, as you said, you get it from all sides, from social media, from being in the streets, 
the pressure you put on yourself as well. So I can completely understand that how losing that identity is a really difficult thing to come to terms with. You mentioned that it took you to some dark places. And I know that that sadly, this as your mental health deteriorated post-retirement, it culminated in you attempting to commit suicide. Suicide is one of those topics that I guess is still, there's a big taboo around it. And we don't all talk about it enough, I think, because I think by talking about it, we can really help those that might be struggling at the moment. Do you mind sharing a bit more about how you got to that point? And I think particularly it would be interesting to know why at that time did you feel that there wasn't a way out and that you couldn't necessarily talk to somebody about what you were going through? I definitely can. Totally agree. We need to speak about suicide more so that people have a greater understanding. You know, they can start to identify little flags along a psychological journey where they can say, actually, I'm going to seek attention for this rather than allowing it to get to where I got to. My adverse mental health journey started back in 2001 with that knee injury. I had that same thought about football and my identity in football at that point. My belief was that without it, I was of no value to anyone. So I was housebound, I was flatbound in a two-bed flat in action after my operation. And all I did in that time for a five-week period was drink on my own in a flat And um, in that haze, I didn't speak to anyone because it was 2001. It wasn't a thing. Speaking wasn't a thing. Not only that, James, the way that I've been brought up, my identity and belief system around managing problems, that had been forged way before then. My dad showed me that you deal with your business. You don't talk about your business. You know, if I was crying, it's like, I'll give you something to cry about. You don't show them negative emotions. So everything, that generational conditioning brought me to the point where when I'm dealing with a trauma, I believe I've got to fix it. That's what being a man is about. That's, you know, my belief about masculinity. And because I thought I couldn't, I took an overdose co-proximal and fortunately for me I was found and my stomach was pumped but I didn't engage with any services because that wasn't a thing I was discharged from hospital with saying like well you got away with that one don't be so stupid next time I was like oh okay so my mindset was I've gotten away with it we don't talk about it we pretend it never happened that was the start of my depression, even though I didn't know it, not diagnosed with anyone. It was because of that trauma there. And then I go through uh, 14 more years of football and um, I keep going through these depressive episodes, but I don't know the depressive episodes. And what I'm doing, I'm trying to self-medicate in them, either by drinking or, you know, by dangerous self-sabotage behaviour. What I didn't know was that, Because I suppressed these negative emotions, namely sadness, fear, anxiety, and anger. Any of these four emotions were coming, I would suppress them, hide them, hide them. And ultimately, they would explode. And they would explode in this self-sabotage behavior because I couldn't mask them anymore. And my behavior, in the early years, I thought that I was an alcoholic or I thought I was an addict. But that wasn't it. What was happening was I was desperately trying to avoid these emotions and these thoughts. And the only way I knew to get away from them, to hide from them, was to either drink until I didn't care anymore or get my mind totally absorbed in something so I wasn't thinking about what went before. It's a horrible self-perpetuating state. 
because I'd never been encouraged to talk, so everything stayed in here. And when you're in that depressive attitude, that depressive mindset, it's all hypercritical. You take every situation to the nth degree, always with that negative outcome, and without sharing it, without any objectivity, it becomes your fact. And that was my fact. But when I did retire in 2013, um, this is a really important point because a lot of people don't understand the difference between actively suicidal, suicidal ideation, and just passive intrusive thought. Everybody has intrusive thoughts. 86% of people, according to one study, get that thought, you know, oh gosh, I just wish I weren't here. I wish a ground had opened up and swallow me up. Just having that passive thought, that's not being suicidal, or, you know, that's not actively suicidal, just an intrusive thought. The difference between suicidal ideation, I'll give an example. Let's say you're having a chat with your partner and you think, oh, I could just poke you in the eye. I mean, you haven't. It doesn't mean you've assaulted them. It doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It was just an intrusive thought. But if you go away from that conversation and you sat on the couch and you're thinking, yeah, I'll do it with this finger. And then you get in the car and you think, yeah, I'll do it on a Wednesday because that's when other people will be there. And then you get to the shop and you're like, yeah, and I'm going to say this when I do it. And you'll say that. That's ideation. When you start to really meticulously plan the physical aspects of whatever it is that intrusive thought was, that's the difference between passing thought and ideation. And it's at this point that you really, really have to get the right help. You have to open up and talk to someone. But I didn't know this. And the signs were loud and clear, James. You know, I was getting self-harm thoughts, were driving on the motorway at night thinking, oh, I could just turn my car into this bridge or how long can I drive with my eyes closed? All of this dangerous behaviour, dangerous thinking. But because I didn't share it with anyone, I just thought everyone thought like this. I just thought it was normal thinking. I would really suggest anyone listening, just Google dysfunctional thinking patterns and play bingo because you'll be amazed at how many of them we use, you know, just on autopilot. And the amazing thing about it is that we can change those thinking patterns, but we can only change them, A, if we're conscious of them, and B, if we consciously work at it, you know, finding new new ways and new patterns to put in. So, yeah, it was that complete lack of self-worth, lack of value, thinking that without football that I was no one, having believing I had no one to speak to because speaking still wasn't a thing for me. I put myself in front of a lorry, 60 miles an hour on the motorway in 2014. And James, I'm blessed. It's incredible. I'm blessed. I don't know why I'm alive, but not only am I alive, but I didn't even break a bone in my body. I find it quite incredible. Two days of operations to stitch me back together like, but, you know, I'm here. And it was from there that I entered into genuine psychiatric services. But it still wasn't for another two or three years, James, that I actually started to work on my wellness. For those first couple of years, I thought that just because I had my diagnosis and they'd given me my medication, that I was going to be all right. The medication doesn't make you better. A diagnosis doesn't make you better. All the support services in the world out there don't make you better. 
What makes me better is me engaging with these services, with me honestly engaging with my therapy, me finding the root cause of whatever my depression is or adverse mental health, understanding my signs and symptoms and actively trying to change my conscious and cognitive responses. Unless I do that, then there's not going to be any change. But you're incredibly passionate about it and it's hard to hear But it's also, you are such an inspiration. I mean, how far you've come, just talking about it, as we said, is clearly such an important part of this, of hearing the testimony of somebody that's been through it and come out the other side. And it's a continual work in progress, of course. I think these things are, you don't just come through it and be okay. You have to keep working on it. I think the thing that's just so clear from what you said is the importance of speaking, sort of understanding the triggers and then also being comfortable to talk to people around you or professionals to get the help that you need. So how do we encourage more people to start thinking about it, given that it is still a taboo? I know I think we are making real strides in society around this topic, and particularly to any men listening to this that really need to hear it, but who are, let's be honest, not as good at, and me being one of those people, about showing our emotions and asking for help when we need it. What advice do you have for anyone listening that's, that needs help right now? Well, the thing about men especially is we're awesome at compartmentalizing, aren't we? You know, if something happens and we get emotions like, right, I'm going to put that in that box there. I'll just put it there. And we're brilliant at that. But compartmentalization is only productive if you then go back and deal with what you put in that compartment. Otherwise, it ends up being like a bin bag where you're like, I'll change it tomorrow. I'll change it tomorrow. I'll change it tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, that bin bag explodes. Or if you try and lift it out, everything comes tumbling out. And you're not covered in the last thing you put in there. You're covered in everything that you've crammed in there. And you try and understand what it is that's made that bin bag explode. And it's difficult because that banana skin's covered in spaghetti bolognese and it's stuck to a baked bean can and everything's all intertwined. So when we compartmentalize, we need to go back and see and address what it is that we put in there. Now, one of the fears, especially for men, is that we're going to show this perceived weakness or people are going to judge us or or think less of us. Yes, it is good to talk, but please hear me. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everyone, but it's imperative that you tell the right someone at the right time. And as guys, what we often tend to do is maybe go to a mate or sometimes we might go to our partners or a family member, sometimes, unlikely. I would advise against both of those because your mates invested in your happiness and the likelihood is they'll say, oh, don't worry, fella, come on, we'll go and have a pint. And they they try and distract you from what's going on. Your spouse, partner, family member, they're invested in your happiness and they love you so much. They might try and want to fix you themselves or they might take your feelings personally and react in a confrontational manner. Look, if you've got these emotions, these thoughts, these feelings that you have to, you must tell someone about, then go to people who are paid to listen to you. Go to people who are invested in your wellness not your happiness. There are people there who can help, who want to help, and who are being paid to do so. So you don't have to be like me. You don't have to tell everyone. It doesn't have to be anyone else's information, but it's imperative that you tell the right someone at the right time. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortunate Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm-hmm.